Thank you for coming. Uh, the paper that we're releasing today is a culmination of a year-long effort at CAP focused on, or what we call, the Progressive ID Project. With the proliferation of identification and authentication in American society post 9-11, we thought it was important to begin a discussion about how to pull together a progressive framework for addressing ID policy across a range of issues. Uh, to do so, we began the process by reaching out to a group of experts, some of whom are with us today and on the panel, and also engaging our CAP colleagues uh, in discussions. And the paper that we're presenting today is uh, the result of those discussions. And I'm very pleased to introduce our panelists, uh, starting with my partner in this effort, Peter Swire. Uh, Peter has been a partner throughout. He is a senior fellow here at CAP. He is also the William O'Neill Professor at Moritz College of Law at Ohio State University. We're also very pleased to be joined uh, with, uh, by a number of noted experts in their fields. Uh, Jim Harper is a Director of Information Policy Studies at Cato Institute. Uh, Bruce Schneier is a Founder and Chief Technology Officer uh, at BT Counterpain. And Tobin Wang is the Vice President for Research at Common Cause. And I will turn it over to Peter. Uh, thank you, Cassandra, for leading this progressive identity project, um, which is described in our report. And um, in, in my uh, introduction, I'm going to focus on the part of the report about the ID divide and some of the facts about that. Uh, one of the things I'll get to near the end of uh, my introduction is that we developed six principles, six progressive principles for how to do identity and authentication going forward. Um, but I think the facts um, were most vividly illustrated last month in the Indiana primary when uh, some of you know a group of nuns went to vote, uh, elderly nuns didn't uh, uh, drive at this point in their lives, and they were turned away from voting in Indiana because they couldn't show state-issued, uh, go government-issued ID. And so if we get to the point where nuns are not allowed to vote in this country when they've been registered to vote and voting in the polling place for years, we're really coming up against something that uh, deserves our attention. When we talk about ID in our society, I think for the last number of years we've had two main frameworks around it. One framework, if you ever questioned ID, is to say, well, why are you weak on terrorists? Why do you want the terrorists to win? Uh, and that's why we need uh, IDs. And another frame in the discussions about this is, um, why are you weak on immigration? Why do you want illegal, undocumented people to sort of get services in this country? And both of those ways of talking about identification miss a lot of other parts of the debate. It misses a lot of the computer security sorts of things that Bruce Schneier is a world expert in. It misses a lot of issues. But one thing as we were working on this project is we said there's another way to look at this. So it turns out over 20 million adult Americans, uh, citizens in the United States, do not have any government-issued photo ID. And in uh, I'll go through some more facts in a minute, but as we just sort of assume that there's a world of ID that everyone has, we're missing millions and millions of Americans who fall on the other side of the ID divide. Uh, a lot of you have heard about the digital divide, the idea that some people grow up with, have access to great computers at home. That's going to help in education and commerce. Other people don't have that. They're on the wrong side of the digital divide, and they can't participate in commerce and society in quite the same way. And it's that idea of the ID divide, what's happening for millions and millions of Americans, that we're highlighting in our report. Um, so uh, just to give you a sense of this world of the credentialed people, the people that have, you know, I'm lucky enough, I have a wallet full of IDs. Uh, I can prove that I'm me uh, as, as well as, uh, as many of you in the audience can. Um, and if you live in a middle-class world, if you fly in an airplane, if you uh, drive a car, you're likely to have those wallets. Um, but it turns out fewer than 15% of Americans have passports. 
And it turns out that there's a lot of different reasons why people end up in trouble. So, for instance, the Federal Trade Commission, and we have a couple people today here from the FTC, shows that over 8 million Americans each year suffer from identity theft. Their ID becomes shaky. Things get problematic. Maybe they can't prove they're them or somebody's trying to prove that they are. Over a million Americans, as of this year, are going to be on the watch list for no-fly that uh, Homeland Security runs. And uh, to give you a sense of this, there's a story. Uh, senator Ted Stevens from Alaska, Republican senator from Alaska, held a hearing about a year and a half ago. And he was a little mad at TSA at that point. And the reason came out in the course of the hearing. It turns out that his wife had been put on the no-fly list. As far as we know, she had no history of terrorist incidents. The senator's wife, her name was Catherine Stevens. And of course, the nickname for that is Cat Stevens. And so, you know, so Senator Stevens held a hearing and he, and he cleared up the problem, but most of us can't hold a Senate hearing when something goes wrong. And, uh, and so that's part of what we're facing. Along with identity theft, we have the data breaches, like the Veterans Administration data breach for 26 million veterans. Uh, the British National Health Service this year lost a majority of all of the files for the kids in Great Britain and their national ID numbers. You get data breaches like that, and it shows you that you're, you're going to end up with a lot of people whose numbers, whose ID numbers, whose identity is, um, is at risk. But I think that in a lot of ways, the, the people who don't even have ID, I think would like to try to help you understand the instincts of what the uncredentialed life is like. The Carter-Baker Commission estimated that 12% of voting age Americans lack a driver's license. And you say, who are those people? Well, just for a start, there's over a million legally blind people in the United States. It's a good thing that they don't drive, right? You don't, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why they wouldn't get a driver's license. Um, the elderly, people over 65 and people over 75 have a much, much higher rate of no longer driving, having a valid, non-expired uh, ID. Uh, in a Georgia study, 36% of the citizens in Georgia over the age of 75 didn't have an ID. If you link ID to voting, that means that older people can't vote. And, uh, and so that's a situation we're finding ourselves in. Young people, we have two teenagers in my family. They don't get their driver's license the minute they turn 16 or 18. You have to go through driver's ed in Maryland where we live. You have to pay the insurance, God forbid, on the teenager. And it's expensive uh, to go through that whole driving thing so younger people don't have IDs. Suspended licenses. Turns out in uh, many states you can have your license suspended, which nowadays means you lose the right to vote in some states, uh, in Wisconsin, for instance, you can lose your driver's license if you forget to pay your library fines or don't shovel the snow off your sidewalks. And then you're up against not having uh, a driver's license and potentially down the road not being able to vote. Um, in terms, a vast majority of suspended licenses in Wisconsin, a study found out, are for failure to pay fines to the state for various things like I just mentioned. And this is sometimes called driving while poor. If, you're, if you don't have a lot of money, and, and these fines or these problems come down, then you can lose your license. People who rely on mass transit, people who have lost, uh, lost driver's licenses. It turns out about a quarter of the driver's licenses issued every year in this country are for lost, stolen, or mutilated. We have new figures on that in the report. And that becomes an issue because it becomes more and more expensive to, uh, uh, to come up with these things. Also, when you look in terms of African Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans, some faith communities, there's very disproportionate impact about who has licenses and who doesn't. Um, the report gives a lot of these figures, uh, tries to develop your instinct that everybody's not an upper middle class uh, policy person in D.C. or a member of Congress. Uh, you know, on average, half the people in the country are below average in income. And, um, and so uh, there's a different world out there than I think a lot of people in the policy community have realized. Um, 
The report goes into uh, detail on some immigration issues, matching programs on that side, voting issues, uh, which we're going to hear more about today, the problems under real ID and driver's licenses. Uh, there's a lot of facts that we've tried to pull together, and I'll take about two minutes to talk about the progressive principles and then turn it over to our other speakers. Um, uh, in, the, in the report um, on page, I think, two and three, after um, a bunch of work and input from uh, 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 people who are in the group, uh, we, ha we propose six progressive principles for identification systems, uh, which is to try to have a sort of fact-based due diligence, really look at how these things work before you build the system. That might mean before you build the system, you really do the due diligence. It might mean as you're implementing doing it. But the first goal and the absolute first principle is you actually have to achieve security or your other goal. If you look at the system and it doesn't even get you safety, then why are you spending all this money for safety purposes? If you look at this issue for immigration and it's not changing the immigration world, why do it? If it doesn't achieve those goals, don't go and spend all the money and create all the other problems. Second one is accuracy. Sec system will only work in the long run if it has a high level of accuracy. A watch list, for instance, has false positives. Those are people who shouldn't be on it, the Cat Stevens of the world. It has false negatives, bad guys that we didn't realize are bad guys. And the system over time has to stay accurate or else we're creating huge hassles for people's life, maybe with very little payoff or none. A third principle is the idea of inclusion, a society where people are included. Um, as ID checks spread, it becomes more and more important to make sure we actually can make this work for people. Some people grew up in places where they don't have birth certificates issued, or some states, some cities had their birth certificates washed away in Katrina and other national disasters. You don't want to make it so those people can no longer vote, can no lo longer open a bank account. You have to have systems where people are brought in when, it, when they ought to be able to be brought in. Fourth principle is fairness and equality. These new systems should be designed with, a, with considering how it affects the less wealthy and others who suffer disproportionate burdens. We've seen that there's very different burdens based on age, based on race, based on wealth, et cetera, uh, and, and equality principles when we're talking about basic rights in society really count. The fifth, and this is one we just haven't done well enough to date, is effective redress mechanisms. As I said, Senator Stevens can hold a hearing. Most of us can't. There has to be ways over time when people's lives get caught in this Kafka bureaucratic nightmare. There have to be ways to handle it so people's lives go forward to have redress. And a sixth one um, is equitable financing for systems. The Real ID system was an unfunded mandate. They just told the states, go spend billions of dollars. We're not going to give you the money from DHS to do most of it. And uh, you figure out all the problems that come that way and take the political hit. And even more, the funding mechanisms often mean, for some people, hugely disproportionate costs. Um, a passport, uh, sorry, a, a driver's license can cost 50 or $65 in some states. A passport's 100 bucks, But proving your naturalization, getting those papers, is often over $200. And so for different people, it costs more and more and more. Plus, you have to get the court records to prove that you're, uh, you've been divorced or that you've been adopted properly. And as we have stricter name checks, the documentation requirements go up and up. Um, as I said, there's quite a bit more detail in the report. I don't want to do too much of the, of the time here. But we have this ID divide as a way to say when we build these systems, include all the people in. Don't just throw tens of millions of people away. And we have the idea of some principles for doing the due diligence to look at these systems going forward. Thank you, Peter. Jim? Thank you, Cassandra. Uh, it's, a, it's a great pleasure for me to be here. 
uh, at CAP. Uh, I, I, Peter and I were talking earlier, and I may be the first Cato speaker we've we've had here, and we're delighted to represent. Um, for two organizations that have very very different uh, ideological positions, there are lots and lots of things that we can work together on, and I think I think this is one. And I found very little to disagree with in the report. In fact, uh, I wanted to to uh, help lock down some of what's in the report. Uh, in particular, on on page 28, there's a, a, a passing reference to the idea that a 90 percent uh, income tax rate might be too high, and I think that's something that Cato agrees with strongly. And 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 let's lock in that as a as a as a place of agreement. Maybe next year talk about 89 percent as being as being also too high. But uh, but in seriousness, uh, uh, Peter and, and Bruce are some of my favorite ideological foils. We have great discussions about issues, but but definitely come together on issues, uh, particularly things like uh, identity. Um, I guess the way I think about these things and the way I wrote about them in my book, Identity Crisis, is to look at look at them from a 30,000-foot level. And one of the most important things to understand, and many of you here already do, is is the, the, the changed circumstances we'll, we'll experience as we move further and further into the digital age. Um, we're only at the beginning uh, of, of an era when uh, most everything is digitized. Uh, there'll be lots and lots more of that. And, and that simple change in the way information moves and, and the, way it, the way it's, uh, it's stored and transferred and processed uh, is very, very important to, to privacy. Uh, analog information, that is just the, the stuff you're looking at right now, not the stuff that's recorded on that camera, it doesn't store well. It doesn't copy well. It's very hard to manipulate. But digital information is very easy to copy, to store, to reuse, to transfer, et cetera. So, so uh, digitization is the sort of key factor that's going to change uh, the, the context of our lives and, and erode privacy if we don't take steps uh, to, to, uh, to truly protect it. I think Bruce will maybe go into some more detail on that with, with specific reference to identity cards. So that's the, the, the context, the framework of all this, is that we have to reconsider uh, our identification policies in order to maintain the privacy status quo or even just to reduce the loss of privacy over time. It's not, it's not a given that privacy has to stay the same over, over eternity, but, but we definitely want to give up privacy at a slow pace so that we can accommodate all the changes in society. And I, and I, I honestly think that one of, the, one of the most important things about this report um, is that it recognizes identification policy as a discrete area that needs to be subject uh, of consideration. Uh, up to up to now, identification policies, to the extent uh, there are any, are things that we backed into basically as a society. Let's make no one ever said let's make driver's license bureaus the place where we do all our identity. It just happened to evolve that way. Uh, nobody ever said um, let's figure out the security benefits you get from ID systems and implement them uh, uh, appropriately. No, we just started using ID because everybody thought that's what works. So um, this paper. Uh, and perhaps my book and, and, and other work comes together to form what, what I think is a very important area of study that's going forward, um, identification policy. So it's a welcome, uh, welcome contribution for, for that reason alone. Uh, let me share just a little bit of my thinking about how we reconsider identification policy. We should reconsider identification policy going forward so that we can preserve uh, that, that privacy status quo that I hope we'll, hope we'll keep. Um, for the longest time, for millennia, for since, since the beginning of human history, we've essentially used identification all the time for everything uh, because we're evolved for it, we're very well practiced at it by the time we're three years old. Uh, we use identification in, in our interpersonal reactions constantly. And so it's a common assumption that, that we should use identification in every other transaction as well. But that's where that digitization problem comes in, and we need to reconsider that. 
So at, again, at the 30,000 foot level, I think it's very important to, re to, to reconsider the use of identification in our institutional and remote transactions. That is, and here's a sort of hierarchy, the way I think about, uh, about things. Uh, every, everything, every transaction uh, involves some form of authorization. That's a decision by either party, both parties, to go forward with the transaction. Now, the, the, the fulcrum for that decision is the credential. What do I need to know about this person in order to go forward? Uh, what do I need to have? What do I need to, to have proven to me? Only sometimes is that identity, and that's sort of the key point. Very often it's paying or ability to pay. It's being a certain height. It's having re reached a certain age, having a certain security status, all these other things. These are the, the key facts that allow transactions to go forward. It's not identity, though out of habit we've used identity for a lot of years, and out of habit a lot of organizations use identity today. No, we need to seek the credential that's relevant, which is only sometimes identity. And then I put the authentication question as how, how uh, sure are you of the credential that's been produced? That is, that is, has this thing been subject to forgery or fraud or that kind of thing? So again, every transaction is subject to authorization based on a credential that's only sometimes identity. And then you check the, the bona fides of the credential through authentication. Let me take up voter ID because it's a, an important issue, and I know that Tova will address it some. Everybody sort of assumes that you have to know who's voting, but if you actually think about voting, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the, the precise identity. Uh, voting is, is, a, is a right that is generally given based on someone's residency, the fact of having achieved the age of 18 years, uh, the fact that they're a citizen, and in some many jurisdictions, absence of a felony conviction, and finally not having voted before in that very same election. These are each credentials, and you don't need a, a, vote, a voter ID system in order to administer these credentials. That's a little bit of a mind stretcher because it's a, it's, a ways, it's a ways off to have systems where we can prove everything needed for voting without ID, but think about these possibilities. The relevant credentials don't go back to the identification of the individual. You don't need a voter tracking system in order to have uh, uh, fair and, and, and uh, secure administration of voting. There are examples of, of systems that we should consider as models. Uh, the San Francisco Department of Public Health, for example, uh, issues a, mar uh, a medical marijuana uh, authorization card that proves that an individual within, within reasonable tolerances for the purpose, proves that an individual is entitled to use medical marijuana but isn't based on a back-end database. You go down to the Department of Public Health, you give all the information that proves who you are, the fact that you're, you're a San Francisco resident and your authorization, and they take that information, issue you a card, give everything back. And so they don't keep a database. They've done this specifically because they're under threat from uh, federal law enforcement to come in and grab any lists that have been produced of people who carry this card. So there's a, there's a public policy crucible in which uh, a, a, a good credentialing system came out of it. Another example, I think, is the clear card. This is a card used in the uh, uh, Transportation Security Administration's Registered Traveler Program. Now, that program I, I object to uh, in the first place, uh, so I don't use the clear card or, or registered traveler. But within that program, registered traveler is a very, I think, clever design that will prove to the TSA that a certain body is a member of the registered traveler program without telling the TSA who that is. That deprives the TSA in a, in a likely future of having records of who has traveled where on what day. And so that, that data minimization, the resistance to, to surveillance uh, that's built into the clear card system within registered traveler is another good example of a credentialing system. It proves this body has a certain security level. So 
uh, finally, the, the, the thing I think we need to move to or, or a thing we should consider for the future of, of identification is to, is to have more diversity, to have uh, competition among different identity providers, uh, maybe move, uh, take, take our thinking away from the idea that just having a passport or having a driver's license is what gives you entree into the society, gives you entree to good services and infrastructure. In fact, if you go to your wallet or you go to your purse, you'll find that there are many different kinds of documents that give you entree to many different kinds of things, and they all have different designs all the way down to, to black printing on heavy paper. If it's not of a high security use, that's a decent identification card or credential privately issued. All these things we should embrace and explore and build on uh, rather than the current sort of policy direction, not represented in this report, thankfully. The current policy direction is to uniform, uh, unify our identity systems on the driver's license, for example, on the passport, or perhaps something issued at the Social Security Administration. So diversity, competition, and identification and credentialing uh, will help us a lot, help with reaching the goals expressed here, help with privacy. None of this, of course, unfortunately, is a panacea. But thanks for hearing me out. I look forward to Q&A. Great. Thank you, Jim. Bruce? <coughs> So hi, I'm Bruce Schneier. I, I'm a security technologist. I work in sort of the intersection of security and technology. And it's interesting that I, I mean, I agree a with pretty much everything Jim said, but from a very different perspective. He's really talking about from a policy perspective. I'm going to try to explain why it's true from a security perspective. And to do that, I want to put a little picture on the screen. And does anyone know how we do that? There we go. Okay. So when people think of ID cards, this is what they think about. Right. An, ID, an identification is a piece of plastic that somehow attaches you to some kind of identity. So, so in that case, it would be like a driver's license that would have your name and your picture. Right? And it's somehow, and that, that maps to you. Right? And when we talk about improving identity, that's what we try to improve. Right, improve that linkage. We do that through possibly adding biometrics or possibly making the card less forgeable. Right? I mean, to, to, to make sure that that card links better to the person. Now, from a security perspective, any ID system is a whole system. And that's just a very small piece of the system. When you look at the system, you have to look at it in its entirety. So, so for example, any ID system includes a back-end database. Right? Jim mentioned this. So there's a, there's a back-end database which will have all the information on the ID card, possibly more. And this database, as we know, is very vulnerable to abuse. Right? Lots of examples of identi identity thefts, when they happen, don't happen from that card. They happen from that database. Right? Someone steals a million names here, 250 million names there. I mean, th it happens again and again. Right? So the database security is extremely important and difficult. There's also the issuance procedures. Right? No ID system can be more secure than the breeder documents used to get that ID. This is very important. We cannot manufacture authentication. If, you, if it takes, I'm making this up, a birth certificate to get an ID card, the ID card cannot be more reliable than the birth certificate, right? because that's the breeder document. In addition, you have the entire issuance procedures. You know, we know that uh, some of the September 11th terrorists got I guess they got, they got legitimate IDs in fake names by bribing a DMV clerk. So it doesn't matter how good your card is, if the issuance procedures have flaws, and they all will, that will hurt security. 
right? And there's issuance, there's reissuance. You know, many people lose IDs, have to get them reissued. So there's a lot of systems are in these issuance procedures. There's also the verification procedures, right? None of this does any good unless there's a system of verifying ID. And we all know sort of how those work and don't work, right? You present a credit card and nobody checks a signature. You, uh, I mean, I have, I make a habit of now presenting my photo ID with my thumb on my photo, waiting to see somebody say, excuse me, I can't see your picture. It's surprisingly rare that happens, right? It's airports and nowhere else. But, you know, so the, the, the verification procedures. And remember, that verifier also has access to the database. And we have lots of examples of verifiers using the database for their own purposes, using and abusing the database. Again, you start using this system, and that database starts getting other users and other data. So what becomes, starts out with a small database, becomes bigger. Now has more users, more data, and again, you have accuracy issues. You have uh, who's authorized to get at that database, what they do with it. So suddenly, you have more security vulnerabilities. Right? Lots of examples we have IRS employees looking up the tax returns of people they feel like looking up, uh, hospital employees looking up medical records of people they're interested in. Right? As soon as you start increasing the usage, you increase the risks enormously. But in also, I mean, Jim pointed this out. As the systems get used, they get used for other things. Right? There are unofficial verifiers. It is actually perplexing in our society that a license to drive has turned into a credential to drink alcohol. But in fact, it has. It's, it's, a, it's not an official use, but it is a common use. And there are many common but unofficial uses of ID cards, especially ones that have a government uh, number around them because of, of, of liability issues. So now we're seeing uh, in, in several states, uh, if you show your driver's license to drink, the bar will scan a copy of it. Not because they really care about your age. They want your data for marketing purposes. Right? Hotels will do that. Much uh, more common in Europe. You, you stay at a hotel, and they will take a scan of your passport. Right? So there's unofficial verifiers and how they use it. And then this data will now shows up in unofficial databases. Right, that bar is going to take that data in their own database, sell it back to ChoicePoint. Right? And, and suddenly the same data is now in this database that's not even controlled by the authority that issued the credential and verifies it in the first place. So the unofficial databases. And again, now more data goes in, more users. So what starts out as, as a very simple system, right, linking a card with a person, becomes a very complex security system. And when you evaluate the security of this system, you have to look at that whole picture. You can't just look at the card. You can't just say, we're going to make the card harder to forge. Right? That doesn't affect the database. That doesn't affect the verifiers. That doesn't affect issuance. That doesn't affect the digital divide. Right? That has nothing to do with the real problems of identity as a credential. And, and to me, that's the fundamental thing to look at, the notion of identity as something that will help prevent terrorism. So this is my second picture. Now, this is what we want, right? We want a card which has, you know, profession evildoer, right? We don't want any evildoers on the airplane, so we're going to look at your card. If it says evildoer, we're going to kick you off. 
right? That, that makes sense. Unfortunately, it doesn't make sense. We can't do this. We can't produce this card. So we really, we're gonna tr we try to do is we try to fake it, right? We try to pretend we have this list of evildoers, right? And, and that's the no-fly list. And, and to understand how good that list is, you have to understand, it's easy, just look up no-fly list on, on Google and read any of the articles about it. Right, this seems to be two problems. We, we, we mentioned the, uh, the Cat Stevens problem, which is, uh, I don't know why I'm on that list. There's also the Ted Kennedy problem, which is my name is similar to someone who's on that list. Right, near as I can tell, we've caught nobody from this list. And the notion of a million terrorists, right, people who are so dangerous and not allowed to fly for any reason, yet so innocent we can't arrest them, seems odd. So this is what we do. We pretend there's some linkage between identity and intentionality. Right? And that's where we're making the mistake. The evildoers all have ID cards, and they will continue to get them. Right? All 9-11 terrorists had them. Timothy McVeigh had one. The Unabomber had one. The DC snipers had one. You know, everybody we can think of had an ID card. And there are limitations to identity-based security. I, I like a lot of what Jim says about, about other approaches. Whenever someone tells you identity equals security, look at them back and say, burglar alarm, door lock, tall fence, reinforced airplane cockpit door. Right? There are many security devices that have nothing to do with identity. And when you use identity, a fundamental principle to me is a distributed system. Right? Paradoxically, if you make an ID card that is more valuable, it becomes more valuable to forge. And ID cards are hard from a technical perspective. I need to make something that can be produced cheaply in bulk, yet expensive to forge individually. That's not easy. And if a card becomes more valuable, even making it harder to forge won't over overcome its greater valuable value if forged. A more centralized identity makes identity theft a more profitable crime and hence makes it more common even if the ID card becomes harder to forge. Right? And like Jim said, you open up your wallet and you see many credentials. And I have my wallet here and there's a driver's license and a credit card and I have a corporate ID card, and I have the Metro card I used to get here, right? and I have my passport, and there's a, uh, a library card in here, and a half a dozen other cards, and here's a health card. Right? There's no reason technically why Visa can't use my driver's license as a credit card. Right? It's just a number, but they don't. They don't because they work better with a distributed system, possibly with less security, but that, that they control. A centralized system doesn't serve them. And when you think about identity and security, it's real important to think about all of these different things and how they work together. So I'll be happy to take questions at the end, too. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, uh, Toba? Hi. Uh, is this on? Uh, a little bit closer. Okay. Uh, I'm Tova Wang. Recently, I was, uh, until recently, I was a fellow at the Century Foundation, and for the past six weeks or so, I have taken on the job of uh, Vice President for Research at Common Cause, but still continuing my research in this area. 
And I, I really want to thank Peter and Cassandra. What they've done with the, the working group that we had is really important. This idea of applying the concept of due diligence to um, the voter identification process or the issue of identification in general. Certainly in the voting context, um, I'm not aware that any of the state legislatures that have passed strict voter ID laws engage in any kind of kind of an analysis or study of this form to see you know, whether these kinds of uh, ideas would work in the voting context to prevent fraud, what their impacts would be. Um, I, I, you know, in Indiana, certainly, um, where they have passed the strictest ID law in the country and was, was just held by the, the Supreme Court, uh, I'm not aware that the legislature or the Secretary of State in, in that state, for that matter, undertook this kind of analysis of seriously studying the, um, the advantages and disadvantages of, of doing this, the helps it would uh, bring and the harms. They've really just been rammed through, frankly, uh, on the basis of a lot of uh, unsupported speculation, usually on a party line basis. I, I, you know, given that, I'm not sure that the outcomes would have been any different if they had engaged in some analysis. Um, but it, I think it's troubling that they didn't do so, and I'm glad that, that we brought that to bear on this debate. And, and what's suggested in this report is a little bit similar to something I just worked on. I just wrote a, wrote a paper applying um, international election principles to the voter ID uh, law from Indiana and other and Georgia to some extent, and it, they're similar principles: is security, pro professionalism, accuracy, timeliness, equity, and you know again in this case, if you really go through the analysis, using voter ID to prevent fraud at the polls fails miserably. Um, just to give the lay of the land, there are 24 states now that require um, all voters to show ID. There are actually really only a small handful that require a photo ID. Um, and some of those states have sort of an alternate track, usually that um, you can sign um, an oath or affirmation that you are who you say you are and you're able to um, vote by a regular ballot. Um, there are three states that absolutely require photo ID. Um, Florida requires photo ID, but it doesn't have to be government issued, although the, the list of ideas that they're allowing to use is, is growing smaller daily. Um, if you don't have an ID when you show up at the polls, you can cast a provisional ballot, and there's a presumption pretty much that it, if you're found to be an eligible voter, that will be counted. Um, and in Georgia, it's also very strict, but the difference there with Indiana is that in order to get the so-called free ID that you need to vote, um, you can bring to uh, their offices any number of IDs, including simply the voter registration card you are given when you register to vote, which actually really um, demonstrates what a sham it is in terms of trying to prevent voter fraud because basically you just have to register to vote to get the ID card that you need and yet Georgia's steadfastly making people take that second trip to get their ID you know no matter what it costs people or people can't get off of work so I think that's really telling right there. Indiana is, is of course the worst as we know um, it's basically the situation is if you don't have a current government issued photo ID, essentially a driver's license that has your name on it the way it is. So, I mean, I hope you didn't get married in the interim if you're because if your name is, is different than when you registered, you're going to be in trouble. Um, you're not going to be able to vote. Um, and there's no backup measure. There's no sort of fail safe where you can sign an affidavit like in some of these other states. The only way that you can then um, cast a ballot and have it counted is if you leave. Um, go home and get another ID, or within the next 10 days, take another trip to the county board with um, identification, or um, swear that you couldn't bring ID because you're indigent or you have 
a religious objection and um, indigency is completely un undefined by the law. So you're supposed to swear out something that you don't even know what you're really swearing to. Obviously, coming back uh, a second time within 10 days is not really going to work for most people. Uh, we have enough trouble getting people to the polls one time, even if they have it. Um, and also, obviously, it's going to cause a hardship for some people to, to do that, um, you know, essentially amounting to a poll tax right there. Um, and so, uh, uh, but they, they described that. And, and as Peter has been talking about, the potential to skew election outcomes is huge. Um, I think you mentioned or started to mention the, the numbers of ten, about 10 percent of people don't have the ID that would be necessary to vote in Indiana and some of these other states. Um, that's 20 million people. Um, he talked about the ID divide, comparing it to the digital divide, and I think that's a really smart way to look at it. I mean, I won't go, you know, a lot of these numbers are in the report and I won't go into detail, but I mean, there have been several academic studies at this point that show that lower income Americans are much less likely to have the ID necessary to vote. Um, disproportionately immigrants, disproportionately people with lower incomes, um, you know, uh, people of color and so on. And, you know, it's not surprising that poorer and less educated voters would not have the kind of ID we're talking about. I mean, did Katrina not not uh, teach us anything? I mean, you know, there are people, believe it or not, who are not going like to Blockbuster all the time or, you know, flying around going all sorts of places and, um, you know, going into government buildings all the time. They're just the people who make the argument that, well, you know, everyone has ID, so what is the problem? You need an ID to rent a video and get on an airplane, which, by the way, isn't actually true. Um, it's always really kind of personally disturbing to me because it, it belies a sort of elitism uh, disconnect to the fact that there's this whole segment of our society that they just completely are not just unaware of but don't care about. Um, and that's really what we're dealing with here. Um, they also talk about making the ID free. Well, the ID is really never free. Um, for In Indiana, for example, you have to um, go to the DMV during working hours, pretty much, uh, you know, if you if you can do that. Um, stand online for who knows how long, you know how DMVs are, and you have to present identification to get the identification, um, as, as we've been talking about. It's sort of this ridiculous catch-22, and those identity documents cost money. Um, Peter was talking about this, you know, um, needing $100 for a driver's license, $45 for a birth certificate in some cases, $97 for a passport, $200 for naturalization papers. The other problem is a lot of the time these uh, kind of documents can't be issued immediately. It's not like you call up and they, you know, email it to you or something. This can take weeks or months to process. And we are talking about voting in particular, and we know people don't, I mean, we, you know, we have problems with making registration uh, 30 days out. And you talk about trying to like compile all these documents and then go out to DMV and get a picture ID. I mean, this can take a long time and there are people who are just not gonna be able to do it. Um, now proponents of ideas, you know, justify this as uh, saying that it's necessary to prevent fraud. And this is where this report really becomes extremely important. Principle number one is this security principle, which is what we're talking about with the prevention of fraud. It fails principle number one. You actually don't even really need to go on further in the analysis because we know that this is this type of voter fraud that a voter ID could address really uh, doesn't go on. Um, and so the, kind, the, the fraud that they're talking about is simply not addressed by identification at the polls. Um, you know, again, I'm sure you know many in the audience that I, I see here know there have been all these studies of you know of people 
that they're just not these people going out and, and impersonating other voters at the polls. It's also um, really telling that um, we know from the, the U.S. Attorney, uh, U.S. attorneys, the scandal that, you know, voter fraud was a very high priority for this Department of Justice over the past six or seven years. And actually not one case of voter fraud that they pursued, not one, was of the type that would have been prevented by a voter ID. Similarly, um, in none of the federal cases have any of the states um, in question been able to present one case of voter fraud that a voter identification would have blocked or, or prevented or caught. Um, not one out of any of these cases. And even Justice Stevens, in his majority opinion in, in Crawford, uh, upholding Indiana's ID requirement, could find two examples to support the state's uh, and his justification for the law. An incident from the Boss Tweed regime in the 19th century, seriously, and a single case of possible impersonation fraud in Washington state in the gubernatorial election of 2004. Now, so, so now we have this dynamic in the debate. So now there's the proponents of ID for voting have sort of um, had a tactical retreat and they, they've shifted. Now it's that, well, we need voter ID laws because people think there's a problem with voter fraud. Um, and we can't let people's confidence in the voting system be called into question. Um, well, first of all, it's not true that people uh, feel that way and that affects them. We have studies out now that show that belief in whether there's voter fraud or not actually has zero impact on voting behavior. But I mean, you know where I'm going with this. Obviously, it's very convenient that the people who have created the environment in which people are concerned that there is fraud at the polls are now saying we have to worry about this crisis and confidence and therefore we need ID at the polls. It's just, I don't know, it gets so circular I can't even really follow it after a while. Um, and it, it's obvious why, you know, this doesn't go on. It's just not worth it. It's not an effective way to steal an election. If you're going to, you know, between us, if you're going to steal an election, absentee ballot fraud is a lot more effective than going to the polls because, you know, you're shifting one vote maybe. Um, if you get caught, you're going to jail or being deported. Fraud no, here. no, neither I am I. I'm just saying. <laughs> For perspective. This is the problem of being a security guy. You always end up doing this stuff. Um, you know, or buying votes. Now that I'm, I'm, you know, that would be better too. Um, but you're, your you're, you're, affecting ways, yeah. so, you're affecting one vote. If you get caught, you're going to jail or a 10000 and or a $10,000 fine. And if you're a non-citizen, and by the way, this is like the, the craziest part of this debate to me is that, you know, you have all these immigrants who in this climate where, you know, there's under so much fire, going to the polling place and saying, hi, I'm not a citizen, I'm here to vote, you know, it's just, it's crazy. Um, so it doesn't make sense. It's not a logical way to, to steal an election. So that's, so that's where we're at. So where are we going from here? Well, Supreme, Supreme Court has upheld this thing. There's a lot of concern in the voting rights community, I think very well justified, that other states will try and go forward with similar ID laws as Indiana's, and, and people will be disenfranchised. But uh, there's a shred of hope that, you know, uh, maybe people become wiser about this. And I, I, I am confident also that this is not the last the Supreme Court has heard about this. So we will see what happens. Great. Thank you, Toba. Uh, I'll ask a couple of questions of our panelists, and then we'll open it up uh, to questions from the audience. As I said at the start, you know, this was a, this is, we started this conversation, and we hope it's an ongoing conversation, and that you're, you'll participate today and that that will take comments and, uh, and figure out what our next steps are in this process. But I, I guess my first question is to, uh, is to, is to Bruce, but the other panelists can, can also respond if they like. 
How can technology actually help us, Bruce, in this process? Obviously, we do, you, you talk about the challenges that technology presents with centralized databases. How can technology actually help us? I mean, the trick is to use it wisely. I mean, clearly there are systems that require authentication and require identity. And uh, to me, it is, it's, it's, the, uh, it's having the right amount of security for the system. So, I mean, a, a good example would be, would be a bank. I mean, a bank is very concerned that when you take the money out of your account, you are the same person who put the money in last week. Right? That, that's really important to them. That's important to their business. And they've built security systems to make that work. And they, they do use technology. You know, they don't over-rely on it. But they do use it. Some of it's based on authentication. Some of it, a lot of it isn't. You know, we laugh when uh, you know, someone doesn't verify a signature on the back of a credit card. It's because they really don't care. I mean, you can buy stuff over the phone. You can buy stuff over the Internet. You don't actually need the card. No one authenticates anything. They do a lot of back-end uh, back analysis of a fraud, looking for fraudulent spending patterns. So there's a smart way to use technology to reduce fraud that doesn't necessarily rely on identity or on authentication. Uh, you know, biometrics will serve a, serve a purpose uh, in, in a lot of areas. I, mean, I like uh, computers that have a little fingerprint reader to, tur to turn on a laptop. That's a place where biometrics make sense. You know, face scanning in airports doesn't. So it's not how can technology help. It's more understanding what technology can and can't do, where it works and doesn't work. I mean, in ID cards, you know, over-reliance on technology actually makes us less safe. Right? Because that's, that makes systems that become automatic, that become more easily to exploit, and become more valuable once you exploit. I mean, if you think it's no fun when someone steals your identity and gets a credit card, wait till someone steals your identity and goes through, goes through airport security. Right? There, so it's not how technology can help. It's the balance of technology in, in, with respect to the problem. Please. Um, so the part of the report that uh, I didn't talk about in my opening remarks is a whole chapter about biometrics and technology going forward. And, uh, uh, you know, Bruce is, is great at explaining it. But one thing that just surprised me as I got into this was, for instance, how easy it is to fake fingerprints. Uh, so you can do a very advanced uh, research task. Uh, put fake fingerprint into your favorite online search engine. And on the front page, if you put that in, you'll find a whole series of links on how to do it for under 10 bucks. Basically, uh, you take a picture of, uh, of whatever the fingerprint is, and you print it out on a laser printer, maybe Photoshop it a little bit, and then print it out onto the equivalent of gummy bears and put it on your finger. So that's what it takes to make a really good-looking fake fingerprint that, is, in Bruce's blog, it showed beat the commercial readers that are out there right now. Um, and so if we're going to go spend millions of dollars, et cetera, uh, putting fingerprints on cards or making fingerprints the, the key into all sorts of things, we're building a very insecure world. And here's something that's even worse about it. Today, if you lose your credit card, you can get a new credit card number. You lose social security number for identity theft, you can, you know, with enough trouble, you can eventually get a new social But it's really hard to get a new finger, right? Somebody steals your fingerprint, has pictures of it, puts it up on the internet, can put it for 10 bucks in the gummy bear trick and, and pretend being you, you don't get that back. And so going into biometrics is going into a known risk of identity theft going forward. And a lot of, t a lot of the proposed solutions are not going to be happy for that. Secretary Chertoff recently was quoted as saying it's very hard to fake a fingerprint. And that was, uh, shall we say, disappointing because I've been in meetings where people have explained this to him. Uh, uh, <laughs> 
where I was one of the people explaining it. And, um, and, uh, and you know, there, there's advantages for DHS sometimes, uh, some, of, some of whom are here in the room, there's advantages at DHS of having databases of fingerprints so they can spot the occasional bad guy. But the risks to real people of identity theft is a big problem going forward that needs more, more awareness of that. Uh, Jim, uh, I'll question for you. Uh, how does DHS address Homeland Security concerns? Um, you're on a board, right? An extended reaction to uh, sort of sort of knee-jerk reaction to 911. So far, I do. I, I serve on a on a committee that advises the Department of Homeland Security on privacy issues, the Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. Be meeting next week, I think, here in Washington for a couple of days. So uh, check that out. It'll be hot. Um, well, I, I, despite good words uh, from, from the Secretary, uh, I, I think the Department itself and, and most of the Beltway security folks are on an extended overreaction to, to the September 11th attacks and have yet to adopt a, a risk management framework or, or any kind of, of uh, 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 thoughtful approach or metrics for, for the security system. So. It's understandable, it's okay that, that on September 12, 2001, a thousand ships launched um, that all were aimed toward securing the country and figuring out what our, what our vulnerabilities were and who might do us harm next and so on and so forth. Um, some, some of it has worked, uh, I, I induce from the fact that we haven't been attacked uh, in, in any significant way since then. It's very much time, it's well past time now to start um, figuring out what works, uh, figuring out what doesn't work, and casting aside what doesn't work. And now I've spent a lot of time on identity-based security and, and um, studying other experts, and and I think it's pretty clear to to those of us who've, who've spent some time on it that you don't get a lot of security from identity. The direct interdictions, like hardened cockpit doors, door locks, uh, all all kinds of all kinds of direct interdictions against any uh, attacker are much, much more secure, much less expensive than trying to figure out who everybody is, lock down everybody's identity, and, and also try to predict what they plan to do next. It's just, uh, it's just a, an incredibly vulnerable system. I actually testified in the, in, in, in the Senate on Real ID, and I used Homeland Security um, numbers from their economic cost estimate uh, and, and applied, uh, granted Real ID, the national ID law, uh, that, it would, it, that it would forestall uh, a, a second 911 attack, which is a very, very generous assumption, for six months. That is, it would take six months for Al Qaeda to come up with the identity cards, including the very passports that, that any country issues, to, to get onto a plane. Six month delay, real ID was still more costly than the benefit of, of delaying an attack like that, even a huge 911 style attack. So, very costly, very porous. Uh, there's just, uh, and yet DHS presses forward with it and with other security type, pro uh, identity-based security programs, mainly because they're not doing the analysis yet that they need to do. Oh, okay, I will, unless the panelists have questions that they want to ask each other, I will, <laughs> I'll throw it open to the audience. If you could, if you have a question, if you could state your name and your Organizational affiliation. Identify yourself. I think you don't. You should. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, I. I <laughs> we were debating in no, the green we, room. Uh, that's 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 uh, that is that's our policy at CAF. That's what that's what Christine will will, will ask you that you do. No one's going to check your ID. You no can one's say gonna any check name your you ID want. on the way out to to, 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 to to verify. But if you will indulge us, please. And Chris, please wait for Christine, who has the mic. Questions? Uh, yes, over here. 
Thank you. I'm Eliza Newland Carney from National Journal. Some of the opening pages of your intro and summary speak about private interests who have to gain financially from some of these ID policies. Those haven't been talked about much. I'd love to get a little more discussion of that. Who are these people and what do they want? Hmm. Um, so um, there's companies that make money from selling biometric systems, from selling back-end database systems, uh, from selling every part of the Bruce's great slide of all the pieces in the, in the very complicated systems we have. Um, uh, it's a normal part of companies and of Washington for companies to try to grow their market share. And it's very normal in the procurements at the state level, federal level, for the companies to be there every day explaining why their systems will help the government. And one problem is that the public interest community and informed citizens aren't in the room every day at all of those meetings and can't be in the process as much as companies that are betting their future on a particular contract. So when you look at the public choice, when you look at uh, the political structure here, vendors are there every day and the public is there when we can draw attention to it, that systematically leads to an imbalance on the side of more systems. And so then it takes politics and press and study and due diligence to try to rectify that imbalance, and that's what we're trying to point out in that part of the report. L1 is a company that, that does lots and lots of identification technologies and biometrics and stuff like that. They recently acquired the identity uh, part of a company called Digimark, which was the largest uh, issuer of driver's licenses, the cards, the printer of the cards and that kind of thing. So uh, I think L1 is a company to watch, and I recently published a Cato technology piece called L1, the technology company in your pocket. Um, so it's just going to be an interesting company to watch. They've, they, I think they institutionally have a choice to make as to whether they uh, continue Digimark's work promoting the Real ID Act or whether they uh, abandon that loser. And uh, and really, I think a lot of companies in this in this zone are uh, penny-wise and pound-foolish because they see this great short-term market uh, for government identity systems where uh, a diverse competitive identification credentialing marketplace is much bigger and, and there's much more to be done there that also includes privacy protections and, and there's, there's room for, for more privacy protection, which is what impo it's important to me. But there's, there's a, a much bigger market. It's, it's analogous to the telecommunications marketplace or payments. Um, proof of credential and identity is a big economic service and there's a lot of money to be made there uh, if, if these companies would sort of get off the, the government gravy train. Yeah, and let's not forget the, uh, the large uh, commercial database companies, the choice points, the Axicoms, who make, who make money the more data about us they have and can sell. And, and a, lot of, a lot of what I worry in some of the residual risks is the data moving from the commercial databases to the government databases, government databases to the commercial databases. It is data that the government cannot by law collect that they can buy from commercial databases and, and, and vice versa. There's data that the commercial databases can't get that they buy from government. So a lot of this data moves around and then, then you have to deal with all of the error propagations and, and that's sort of another area uh, of a company that really is into identity as a solution to all your problems. Well, it is, it's already leaking. But leaking there, leaking back, it all, so it all becomes one big sea of data. And then you can't see it, you can't correct it. I mean, the redress procedures don't exist. So, and then the, the ancillary uses. And suddenly becomes a, a very large system you can't control anymore. Could, 
Christine, I think we've got, I think we've got two gentlemen all the way in the back and then we'll come forward again. Hi, I'm Mark Rodenberg from EPIC and I wanted to uh, first commend the Center for American Progress and the members of the uh, study for your excellent report. I mean, it's very timely. It's a very important issue and I'm glad you took it on. But I do want to follow up with a question that Eliza asked and say that Jim Harper's uh, piece on L1 is very good and also very important uh, because I think in this area, while it's helpful to have important public policy guidelines so that good decisions are made, I think it's also important to look closely at particular businesses that really are the leading actors in the field and may, by their own actions, uh, determine a lot of what rights citizens have or don't have. And in particular, I just wanted to say a word about L1, which is really where I think the action is going to be on this issue for the next couple of years. There's a big piece by Naomi Klein in the current issue of Rolling Stone, which basically describes how L1 is helping the Chinese government build its new surveillance infrastructure, clearly for the purpose of monitoring dissident political activity. And the interesting fact here that may be something that your study group would like to take up in the future is that L1's export of this technology and these techniques to China seems to be in violation of the law that was passed by the U.S. Congress with the support of the U.S. Commerce Department following Tiananmen Square, uh, which was that U.S. firms should not be engaging in support of political repression in China through the use of crime control uh, technology. So my question actually for the panel is, you know, a little provocative, but also, as I said, I think where the action really is on this issue. Should the federal government be entering into contracts with this company, L1, if it is currently in violation of U.S. export control laws regarding the uh, transmission of surveillance technologies to the Chinese government? Good luck. <laughs> Let me just, uh, well, thank you, Mark, for your, uh, your compliments to my, to my short paper. Um, to the rest of you, you will know that your privacy is, is safe again when Mark and I get back to arguing. The way. <laughs> um, honestly, that, I, don't, I don't know enough about ex export law to, to answer that question well. Uh, I think it's, it's something that um, government agencies and individuals and advocates should look at carefully. I think it's okay to talk about companies and, and point out their role if their role is antithetical to liberty. So, so that's what I hope to do there. I, what, what policy flows out of that, I'm not sure I'm able to prescribe at this point. But it's a very important question. Uh, just a couple, very brief. Um, one thing is, uh, Mark works, Mark's the head of EPIC, the Electro Electronic Privacy Information Center, and we have references to EPIC and many other resources uh, uh, about this at the bottom of the inside cover, where there's a resources page and identification and authentication real nightmare the ACLU's here today, a number of the immigration rights groups, voting rights information, electronic health records, et cetera. Uh, so, um, and one thing about that is if anybody here has additional resources they'd like to have posted going forward, if you go to that page, it tells how to suggest something to add to this resource list so you can really drill down deep about some of these issues. In terms of the, the question about China, um, th there's a number of 
technologies, and I don't have them all listed in my head, but this sounds like a good example, where I think it's fair to say that the United States and China becoming the leaders globally on a lot of surveillance systems supported by the government. And when we think about what freedom means, land of the free, and all this sort of stuff, I, I've always wanted to think of the United States as an exporter of liberty, an exporter of, you know, sort of beacon of liberty to the whole country, the Statue of Liberty. And if instead we become uh, as we look for export markets, the lead exporters of surveillance oppression technologies, that's a pretty frustrating, scary place to be. And I think we should be very careful anytime uh, we look around and find out that, that the United States is becoming leader in repressive technologies or things that, that could easily be used that way and it's something to really watch for. Okay, Christine. Hi, uh, my name is Mark McCarthy. I'm from uh, Visa. Uh, we're not one of the companies that's involved in uh, building these kind of uh, centralized systems. Uh, but I appreciated the, the work that Peter and Cassandra did. I think it's really going to help inform this debate. Uh, and, and Jim and Bruce, your, your comments on kind of decentralized systems and areas where you, know, you, you don't really need an identification system to get the job done that really fits in with the way we try to do our business as well. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering about a, a perhaps unfortunate implication of the sort of headline uh, from, from the, the report, which is 20 million Americans don't have driver's licenses. And if you really do think that identification is a key to solving a lot of these security problems, why doesn't that lead directly to the public policy implication? Maybe we should all have a national ID. Then these guys that have uh, identification that they could use for a variety of purposes, including elections. The if then is easier to say than to do, and that's really what uh, Real ID tries to do. We should have a national ID. It'll, the states will have it'll look different, but it'll be one system. And the problems we're having, the fact that so many states are saying we can't do this, means it, it is an easier problem to state than it is to solve. We can't just go around giving everybody an ID, and it's the problem of breeder documents. It's the problem of of people getting the IDs of 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 verifying who they are to give it to them, everything we talked about. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the people who are in favor and actually say that. Let's just give it to them. But there's a, there's a whole sea of difficulty between let's just giving it to them and them, and them actually having it. You know, add to the fact that, I mean, I, I don't know if this, data, this statistic is right, but about one-fifth of all credentials are lost every year. Even if it's one-tenth or one-twentieth, that's still an enormous number of people you give them an ID and they're not going to have it a month later or a year later or two years later. So you really want to address, does ID solve the problem? I mean, if it does solve the problem, and, and you know, for Visa, you've got to give everybody a Visa card who has an account. That makes sense. But that's because, I mean, that's a different transaction than let's give everybody in the country a Visa card, which you'll find much, much harder. You'll get the first 80% easy, last 20 gets much harder. And that's what we have to deal with in any national ID card, the people on the fringe for whom it's not easy. Right. I mean, it comes up in the voting context as well. I mean, uh, a lot of people who have proposed ID and come under attack will say, well, you know, we'll make sure everyone gets the free ID. Well, we'll you know, that will solve the problem without ever really explaining how they propose to do that. I mean, what kind of resources that would require? They talk about, you know, that's the case in other countries. First of all, I mean, that's questionable. But the other thing is, is that, you know, in other countries, they have a history um, of providing national identity cards for all sorts of reasons that we have in this country always rejected. Um, we have rejected having a sh show me your papers kind of a society. 
Um, so there's, you know, there's a practical obstacle that I've never heard a good answer to as to how we overcome. And there's a philosophical issue, which, um, you know, I see Barry Steinhardt here from the ACLU, ACLU and they've, they've done tremendous work on this, that, you know, this is, this is not where we want our society to go. Mark, I appreciate that question because it's a, it's a, it's a savvy game theoretic policy, policy wonks question. <laughs> what, what is the answer to the assertion that's been made? It's, it, it, it seems like the most likely answer is, well, let's just get everybody their IDs and then we're done. I guess I guess I approach that problem two ways, and, and the ID area is, is rife with those kinds of problems. You can point out how insecure issuance systems are and the cards themselves, and the answer to that is, okay, we'll, we'll ratchet better. down the security even more, even more, even more. So in my recent paper on electronic employment eligibility verification, I spent a lot of time um, talking about how the end game of that, of, of that vector is a national cradle-to-grave biometric tracking system. Um, so, so taking people down to the end game, make them realize that every step in this direction is toward this end that I think everybody agrees we shouldn't have. And the other, frankly, is to change the subject, uh, and that's to talk about the, the alternatives, the, the, the credentialing systems that, that don't involve that stuff. And just uh, there needs to be a lot more work on alternative identification and credentialing systems so we just move off of this uh, national ID track and get onto a, a track that's better, imperfect, but better. Uh, others, interest? Uh, this is the woman here. Hi, I'm Allison Prevost with American University. Uh, my question is sort of following on from that, starting to look at what some of those alternatives are. What are the alternatives, say, for, for voting? What are the alternatives for um, citizenship verification? What are the alternatives for um, some of our, uh, I guess, kind of criminal tracking databases to make sure that people who are, you know, child abusers don't end up working in daycare? Um, you know, things like that. How do, how do, we, how do we get to a point um, I mean, I understand the, 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 you know, the principle of decentralization, but how do you manage a system with so many different variables in terms of identification or authentic, authentication? Um, you know, what are those alternatives look like and how do we make them sort of talk with one another as well? I want to give a one-sentence answer before I let the others chime in on that. <laughs> and on the, on the voting context, I really want someone to prove to me that there is a goal that is achieved in the first place by having the ID. To even get there, I guess. I guess I there are sort of two two things I would say. Uh, the first is is risk management. Don't make your goal to be preventing anyone who's ever done harm to a child working in a daycare. You're not going to be able to do it. You need to. You're gonna, you're going to have to strike some balance between um, having a goal of zero zero risk along any vector. Like, people are going to have to get over that. It's very political uh, politically saleable to say. You know, no, n never again, nothing. But we're in a we're we're in a risk-based environment. When you cross the street, you're taking risks, and it's okay. We're all good at managing risks. The other, though, and and, and this might be more appropriate for Bruce, or I'm gonna I'm gonna um, sound really dumb to him in particular, is 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 we need we need systems we that that um, use uh, use common protocols to express all kinds of different things. I don't know how familiar you are or other folks with extensible markup language this is a this is a, a, a technology it's a simple way a simple way of expressing um, information in in uniform ways and you just get together and agree on a sort of a, a computer language for expressing information 
and use that language to express all the all the stuff that matters in any given in any given transaction and that let the technologists run with it and come up with all kinds of different products uh, that that communicate the precisely relevant information for a transaction which is again often not identity uh, I think biometric on token that is you prove to your computer little little computer you hold in your pocket you prove to your computer or your card that it's your body notwithstanding the fact that Peter's got a little gelatin version of your thumbprint that's a problem too you prove to your card that it's you and then your card communicates to the the store owner this person is paying you now or this person is transferring funds to you. You prove that you're over a certain age. You prove things that are relevant. Uh, I think I think biometric on token is the right way to go. I'm not absolutely certain though. Just briefly, um, in the report um, we go into the tech technical security issues uh, quite a bit and uh, something I've spent a lot of time about a bunch of my own writing has been in the computer security area. It's one reason I'm so delighted Bruce is here as, as really an acclaimed world expert on the subject. I've come to think that the, that the strong security answers very often tilt against central ID cards. Yes. And that's not people's intuitions on day one. People just think, hey, you put the fingerprint on, it's going to work. You have one card, it's going to prove identity. <laughs> and by the time you look at Bruce's graph at all the pieces that have to work well when we know they don't, you start to find out there's flaws and risks and you're increasing identity theft down a lot of these paths. And so the report talks about things that Jim was just talking about, which is you, that, in, that if we could have an advanced computer device, for instance, that could manage my passwords, that's a heck of a lot better than having one fingerprint that gets lost. And this is my advanced computer device going forward, my cell phone. I mean, many, many people are going to have advanced computer devices going on, and there's a lot of identity things you can do off of that. And my, my, my favorite sites here are the National Academy of Sciences reports on authentication and privacy. They have two books. They have a, one on national ID systems called IDs Not That Easy, which asks about 27 very hard questions before you think the national ID system is going to work. And it's very hard to imagine passing all 27 questions. And the second is a, a big, long report on authentication and privacy in the online world that shows numerous other cool ways to do this stuff that don't require centralized databases. I think the harder you push at the real security questions, the less happy you are with ID-based systems. Yeah, I mean, and the reason it doesn't work, the intuition of why it doesn't work is that all the problems you listed are different. The voting problem, which we know isn't really a problem, is different than the child molester working at a daycare problem, which is different than the uh, are you a citizen problem. And the different, different problems have different solutions. And that's why a distributed system works better. If you tie them together, you force them into a common solution. Your security is now the security of the weakest of all the uses. Right? And the value of breaking it is the value of the sum of all the uses. So you, just, you suddenly make your problem much harder to solve, much more valuable to break, because you're not looking at the individual problems. You're looking at the lump of them all. So the, I mean, that, that's why the answer is distributed, even though it's not int intuitive. It actually is if you have to have the right intuition about it. Uh, other questions? I, I have one in the front. I thought I saw someone in the middle. Why don't we, the, the, the gentleman in the t there? And then. Hi, it's uh, Andrew Noyes with Congress Daily. Um, quick question for you. In the near term and the long term, what, if anything, should Congress be doing? Are they doing something now that you all think could, you know, head in the right direction or, or are they uh, are they not there yet? 
First, do no harm. <laughs> repeal, <laughs> repeal real ID would be nice. There, there is legislation pending to re repeal and real ID and restore the uh, uh, the identification security provisions from the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act. Should be an improvement, though. I don't know if even that would be uh, ideal when we could talk about entirely different systems. But that's definitely the best thing going. One of the points that one of the things that we actually, but points that we make in the paper is that not only are we are we suggesting that our principles should be uh, should be used for identity policy moving forward, but we also say that policies that have been put in place should be reviewed, and so I would say oversight. I'll note that in addition, sorry, um, certainly this summer there's probably going to be effort to, uh, to fund Real ID, and so the debate will be over whether taxpayer dollars should go toward building this national surveillance infrastructure. And I look forward to that debate because of what it's about. Um, there, there. Who knows? You know, fifty million dollars got broken loose in the last in the last appropriations project. That's less than a percent of what it takes to implement Real ID. Uh, they'll come at it again, and, and that will keep the L ones of the world uh, sniffing around if if this stuff gets funded even to that small amount. So that that's an important debate for the summer. I think we've got one question up here. I think this gentleman back here had a question too. We'll, we'll if we could hear first, Christine, and then and then we'll. Thanks. Um, my name is Daniel Bennett. I drafted the Government Paperwork Elimination Act. And back then, um, that was 10 years ago, there was uh, the problem of online authentication uh, for the purposes of doing transactions. And I think one of the problems that you are getting at and trying to explain, but it's hard to explain to people, is, for example, with the case of a signature. Um, people think a signature is an autograph, when actually it is something very different than that. And especially in the context of signing something online, understanding that a autograph can't work online is a hard thing to get across to people. And I think that when you talk about authentication and identification, you're saying, oh, yes, well, it's a different thing, and you can use a, you know, something that has your picture for this, or maybe it doesn't prove your identity, but just you're part of a certain class, or you have a certain thing. I think that you have to work harder at getting that across, because I think, again, everybody goes back to what they think identification is. And I'd also like to just ask, as part of that, I think there really is an opportunity for layered authentication and identification. There's, you know, Open ID is starting to come out online. People are authenticating themselves before they show up uh, to with their plane tickets because they've already printed them out. There's already been something done there, and they're they're in some cases bringing their BlackBerry to be scanned in because it has that. There's there's a very interesting aspect to how people can authenticate themselves and identify themselves, which uh, people don't think about in the case of the digital ID. Um, they could move to Oregon and where they could just uh, mail in their uh, vote and not have to worry about, I mean, there's no mailbox that asks for your ID before you put your uh, absentee ballot there. And a lot of when you start looking at those systems, I, I think it's important to see you know, how sloppy they are, that in fact they work precisely because there's play in them. I mean, you know, anybody can print their own boarding pass for anything, and this isn't even hard. I mean, same thing with uh, you know putting a 2D barcode on your BlackBerry, or or a, you know or a mail-in ballot. The, the fact that it, it's technically feasible to forge them doesn't mean that it's a problem. And you know, 
I mean, Visa to me is a great example of the, the things they do because they know authentication doesn't work, because they know the 7-Eleven clerk is not going to check your signature. And they know that someone's going to take an order over the internet, by mail, by phone, and the card won't be present. And they build a system that provides security for their transactions despite the lack of authentic authentication. And so, so a lot of those systems for airlines and getting tickets, it, the layers work. A lot of the layers aren't authentication layers, or they're at least not individual authentication layers. You know, the, the better financial systems don't authenticate the person, they authenticate the transaction. Right? I would like it for my bank if, uh, you know, if I send, if I authenticate on the, on, online and have all my money transferred to an account in, in I don't know, in, uh, in Poland, that maybe they give me a call before they do it. I don't care if my password is used because it's not about authenticating the person. It's about the transaction. Right? When something weird happens on my credit card, Visa calls me. Even if it's a legit transaction, maybe that's a good idea. Right? But that's not an authentication-based security measure. It's a different sort of thing. So I like, you know, when you go out, watch authentication. There's lots of it that happens all around you. Your metric card is authentication. This doesn't have your name on it. A, a piece of currency is authentication. It, it's, it's anonymous. It, authentication happens all the time, and it's not always about identity. And it's yes, the good ones are layered, and the good ones are the good ones are sloppy. You know, if we have a society where your secretary can't sign for you, things will get way worse. <laughs> oddly enough, <laughs> oddly enough, and and that, that's weird but true. Slop in our social systems helps them work. If they become too rigid, they don't work as well. Just, just an example of uh, rigidity. Uh, as, as I was doing this, I'd hear stories talking about people. And one person, uh, one story I heard was a uh, person in his early 30s who was living in a state that had imposed real ID already as the requirements. And he grew up in a place where he didn't, he didn't happen to have a birth certificate where he grew up in his locality, couldn't come up with documentation for his state. So what he eventually worked out, which works for now, was he moved to another state and established residency for a short time because he could still get an ID in the other state. And then the first state would accept the, the ID from the other state, oh, so then he could move back and finally get his driver's license. But no security is added during this process. But a lot of hassle was added. The other thing I just uh, – JAPIA is the Government Paperwork Elimination Act. When I was in government um, I, and at OMB, uh, I worked a bunch on it, and we had a dispute with the Justice Department about how to do signatures in the online world. And so Janet Reno and I once got to do the following duet. How do you solve a problem like Japia? How do you take a bite and pin it down? <laughs> and there was more, but I can't remember. I haven't gotten to sing that song in quite a long time. But Maybe that's best. How do you follow that? Wow. We need another question quick. I think, yes, we'll follow, we'll follow that with the last question. I think the gentleman on the, in the standing up in the rear. Edward Roeder from Sunshine Press. You've mentioned several of the ills of an ID system that doesn't work properly. It seems that we lack remedies for those ills, whether it's somebody named John Smith who can't work at a daycare center or can't fly on an airplane or is denied credit. Could you discuss, any of you who care to, some of the problems and possibilities for legislation that would have the marketplace work or the court system work to correct 
those problems by bringing a penalty to those who use identity to deprive people of their rights or to slander them or to wrongly label or categorize them. I'll say it's, it's a yeah. Creating a new tort suit um, has been hard to do in Congress in the last bunch of years. Um, but 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 here's a point: is that no one path works for the full population. Just a really simple point: if you use fingerprints, some people don't have hands. Just to take a really simple-minded and but more broadly, any one path you have to have a birth certificate, you have to have this, you have to have that. There's going to be a, a group of the population that doesn't fit neatly into it. And one reason for emphasizing the ID divide is to emphasize that these people become many times innocent victims of the system with cost, with pain, with hassle, with changing state residence, with all of these things happening to them. And up until now, we've just said you're sort of casualties in the war against terrorism or whatever. And by emphasizing the ID divide, we're saying that all the people who are part of our life, of our society, need to have ways in and there needs to be multiple paths in. So one sl legislative solution is don't have single paths. Don't say have this right ID or else you X can't do anything in society. There has to be more paths in. There have to be backups. And by the time you do the backups, it means the system costs more and is more complicated and more expensive. It's part of the reason why you should be cautious about these systems in the first place. The other thing you need is redress, right, on the back end. And, and, right, and whether it's, and there are two different kinds of redress, corporate redress and there's government redress. And there needs to be a system if you are denied boarding an airplane to say, well, look, either you know, charge me with something or declare me innocent. And right now, it's, it's these Kafkaesque systems where you can't vote or you can't get credit or you can't get on the airplane. And no one will tell you what list you're on or how to get off it. And there's no way to get off it, you know, save holding a Senate hearing. And, and those are the, that's where we lose. And then on, on the corporate side, now, if you are denied, let's say you denied credit because something in a database, there should be a system where you can see what basis decision was made if the data is faulty to get in there and correct it. You know, right now, those, those large marketing databases, corporate databases, you have no rights to fix the data about you. And again, it's, it's again Kafkaesque. And, and something worth reading on this is Daniel Solov, who's written a lot about... Uh, you know, privacy and data in the modern age in databases. He's a law professor at GW. And it, I mean, some of, some of his, uh, his articles and books are really worth reading on this. But redress, redress is the key. And, and whether redress would include a penalty, if, if, if you falsely accused me of something and, and I was denied some, some, base, some, some right or some ability to, to behave normally, right, is there some kind of legal redress? But we need to really look at redress. And, and, and Peter's right. Once you start looking at redress, which should be critical and essential in any of these systems, they get much more expensive. And this is why people who implement the systems try not to worry about them. I mean, who cares if a bunch of nuns in Indiana can't vote? I mean, it makes the headlines for a day, then it's over. Right? But that should be a, a, a national shame. We shouldn't build a system that allows that because that is so embarrassing. We shouldn't build a system where people have to change jobs because they can no longer fly because their name is similar to someone whose name is on the watch list but maybe shouldn't be. I mean, so re redress, I think, is critical. So I, I think your, your question is an important one, and, and maybe, I, maybe I regret some of the import of it, which is that let, what, what's the hammer that I bring down to, to fix all this stuff? Uh, because we're really talking about five or six different kinds of problems. There's uh, privacy in terms of control of information. 
uh, fairness of information that, that has been revealed, uh, seclusion, personal security, all these things. So, I, so I'd really, really uh, be reluctant to bring it, try to bring a hammer down that, that gets it all straightened out. But I, but I'll, I'll point out an example where legislating maybe has disserved our interests. The Fair Credit Reporting Act, uh, for some 35 years now or so, um, has preempted uh, state state tort law as against uh, 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 credit bureaus. So for 35 years, the the actions that would have been brought, defamation, you know, perhaps a, you know, a credit bureau is saying that I'm I'm a bad risk and I'm not. Those actions haven't been brought, so the tort law hasn't developed to meet these problems. I think it's I think it's something that we should revive and, and allow um, that system to to work its will on these kinds of problems in the private sector, while the, the public sector is is awfully hard to deal with too. But it needs redress of the type that that Bruce argued for. So it could be that less uh, preemptive federal law is appropriate, not necessarily more hammers coming down to try to get at all these different problems. Okay, great. Thank you. I, I think that this has been a, a, a really good discussion. I want to thank our panelists, uh, uh, Tobin Bruce, who actually participated as a part of the, of the project and the process, um, and Jim, whose work has definitely influenced our thinking on this, on this work. Uh, just quickly, I just want to recognize a couple of people. Barry Steinert, who's here, who with the ACLU, who has was also a participant in the process, uh, and I think Mark Agaras, who's a colleague who's about to sneak out, uh, was 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 also extremely helpful in 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 giving us uh, the, being a part of this discussion. Uh, and Mike Rugnetta, whose research and assistance it definitely helped us move this process along. And I saw a couple of other people who were participants who've, who've, who've left, but we've included the names of the people who participated in, in the paper. And the, the, the ideas in, in the paper are our are, are, are own. Uh, they don't own the ideas, but they were definitely influential in helping us think through these issues. And I thank you for coming. Uh, and if you have additional questions, please uh, uh, feel free to ask the panelists. And uh, we will hopefully see you again when we have another event. Thank you. <laughs>